My text begins in verse 67, which I will begin to read in just a few minutes. What we have here in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67, is a song, a prophecy song that Zechariah spoke, and uh, it may be that he composed this song a few days after John the Baptist was born, but it is also a possibility that when his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak praising God, that this is what came out. He would not be the first person or the last person whose spiritual eyes were opened through the birth of a child. In Genesis chapter 5, there's uh, an interesting statement made about a very interesting man, Enoch. You know, Enoch was one of the people who, who never died, one of the two people who never died but was taken to heaven without dying. The other one was Elijah, but here's what it says about Here's what it says about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. And Enoch lived 65 years, and then he begat Methuselah. And after he begat Methuselah, he walked with God for 300 years. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and he was not, for the Lord took him. Powerful, powerful verses. I bring it up because it seems like the birth of Methuselah was something that served as a real spiritual springboard in the life of Enoch. Seems like that's the same case in the life of Zechariah. In commenting on one of those passages of Scripture, one of my favorite preachers of all time, Alexander White, who's been dead for about 100 years, says... Every man has the opportunity to become a new man when he becomes a father. We have, in fact, a couple of men in our congregation who became new men because of the birth of a child. Gary Belk, I had him tell me the testimony again this morning, how that he was saved as a young man but was not walking close to the Lord And then when that little baby Stacy was wheeled out and she still had uh, the evidences of her having been recently born upon her, Gary said, it came upon me, I cannot have the blood of this child on my hands. And I resolved right then that I would raise her up in the ways of the Lord. And just uh, two or three weeks ago, we heard Dallas Constant give a a similar testimony, besieged with doubts and then with the conception and birth of their child, Raylan, then he realizes, I have got to take this seriously. God used it mightily in his life. When I was a young man in high school, occasionally uh, some boys would get one of those little trampolines and put it next to the basket. And then they would run and jump off the trampoline and do dunks on the basketball goal. And it was great fun. None of them, none of them could dunk on their own. So I looked down with haughty disdain upon them. <laughs> but uh, but it, was, it was great fun for them. They were able to get higher off of that little trampoline 
than they were off of the floor. I can remember when, uh, when we would go to certain tracks. Uh, my high school was a country high school, and our track was covered with cinders, not even asphalt. But sometimes we would go and run at Marshall University. And Marshall University had a synthetic track. And man, you could really jump off of that surface. You could really run on that surface of synthetic track. I I think that the Lord often puts little trampolines in our lives that give us opportunity to get higher than we could without that trampoline. I think that the birth of a child is one of those opportunities. This is an opportunity for me to start again, to take things seriously. I think that the death of the child is the same thing. As I was thinking about this sermon and thinking about our own, our own congregation, of course, Dot and Tanya came to mind that in the death of their precious Lindsay, that they were given a vision of a ministry that has now been a blessing to many, many people, the Grief Share Ministry. And many of you are participating in that ministry. And uh, they were active in the ministry before that. But now they have a new vision for a way that they can use this tragic event in their lives to be a trampoline, to be a springboard to reach new heights of ministry. I think that marriage is one of those springboards. When you get married, you think this is, this is a time when I can start again. I think that uh, the death of a, a parent is the same way. Thomas Willis, uh, who's in the process of joining our church right now, he's not here this morning, but uh, I asked him and several of the other pastoral interns a few weeks ago about their Bible reading, and Thomas said that his Bible reading had gained new life because of the recent death of his father. just gave a, a sense of urgency to life. You know, when your parents die, you have a feeling, I'm next in line. And that kind of seems like as long as your parents are alive, there's kind of a buffer between you and death. But when your parents die, then that feels like you're exposed and you're the next one in line. And it can give a real urgency to things. God uses big things like that, the birth of a child, a marriage, the death of a child, the death of a parent. Opportunities for us to use them as trampoline sort of springboards to reach higher heights of spirituality. Sometimes the Lord uses rather mundane things. It might be a birthday. It might be the turn of the new year. It might be a book that God providentially puts into your hands. My mother was always a godly woman, but uh, when I was in my mid-twenties, there was a new fervor, a new glow about her, a new urgency about things of the Lord, and she was just overflowing with, with truth and with the Spirit of God. And one day, Dad and she and I were sitting out in the yard, and I said, what's happened to you? You've always been a godly woman, but lately, lately it's clear that something has urged you on to higher heights. And she said, I really think it was reading the journals of George Whitfield. A wonderful book, wonderful book, the journals of George Whitfield. And uh, there she saw the example of someone who was really living C.H. Spurgeon's hero was George Whitfield, and C.H. Spurgeon says something like, most men just barely live, but Whitfield was all wing and fire and force. And sometimes reading the biography of a great person can be one of those spiritual springboards. Sometimes the Lord brings a friendship into your life. I mention all these things so that you might look and say, have I missed an opportunity? 
Can I think of a time when I ought to have begun again? And I meant to begin again, but I didn't. My resolves to begin again were like all those people who crowd the gyms in the month of January and then leave by the time February rolls around. But sometimes by God's grace, Methuselah is born. And then Enoch walks with God for 300 years. And sometimes John the Baptist is born. And Zechariah, who was already a godly man, it says concerning him and Elizabeth that they observed all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But now there is a new burst of, uh, of the Holy Spirit that comes upon him. And he says the words of this song. Now, in this song, there are two main points, and they're both about the Lord Jesus Christ. He does mention his child, but most of this song is about what God is going to do through Jesus. And at this time, Jesus is just a six-month-old baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And uh, so, probably Mary was here for hearing this song and left shortly after the birth of John the Baptist but here is, what, uh, here is what Zachariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, says about Jesus. And there is a very important word about his son as well. But there are two things here that Zachariah says about Jesus. And first is that Jesus is a horn, H-O-R-N. And that's not a horn like on your car, not a beep-beep horn, but a horn like on the head of a, an ox or on the head of a cow or on the head of a ram. And uh, so let's see what the Bible says about that. The second thing that, that Zechariah says about Lord Jesus is that he is like a sunrise. So in preparation for this sermon, I, uh, I searched on the Internet for posters that have the names of Jesus. Maybe you have seen those posters. And uh, so I looked at several of them, and none of them had on there the name Horn, and none of them had on there the name Sunrise. And I suppose we could argue that these are more descriptions of who he was rather than names by which he is to be known. But in either case, there's much that I think that we can learn from thinking about the Lord Jesus, first of all, as a horn, and then secondly, thinking about him as a sunrise, and we will be guided in our thoughts by what the Bible says here. So verse 67 says, And Zechariah... His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Someone might say, well, how, how do you know that this is not all a, an exuberant song that he, he bursts forth with in celebration of the birth of his own son? Well, the Bible has already told us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the tribe of Levi, and David was from the tribe of Judah. And so when he says that the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, he's not talking about John the Baptist, his own son. He's talking about little six-month-old Jesus who's still in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This is the horn of salvation that God has raised up for us. Now, we'll think about the implications of Jesus being a horn, but first of all, notice that uh, he has come as a result of a visitation from the Lord God of Israel. God has come, and he has visited his people and has redeemed his people. And in 
in the wake of his visitation, he has left a little gift for us. Well, it's a really big gift. It is the horn. Occasionally, years ago, Carol and I would host a family who, after they had left, would hide money someplace in the house so that we might find it. They just left a little gift after their visit. Well, the Lord came and has visited his people, and he left not a little gift. He left a big gift behind. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, this promise, this, this fulfillment, this horn has come as a result of, in fact, two promises that were made to two very respectable men of the Old Testament. David is mentioned first. In our scripture readings, we never read God's promises to David, but the Lord said to him, you will never fail to have a man sitting on the throne of Israel. And so when uh, Zechariah knows that little Jesus is going to be born, then he says this is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. But God also made another promise a thousand years or more before David, and uh, that was an oath that he swore to Abraham. Let's continue reading, and then we'll come back and pick up the picture that Jesus is a horn. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear. We'll pick up there in just a minute. But there's a promise that was made to David that there would always be a king in his family. And there was a promise that was made to Abraham. God swore to him after Abraham had faithfully obeyed the Lord and had been willing to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering as the Lord had prescribed. And then the Lord delivered him from having to carry through with that. And the Lord said, but because you have done this, I swear that I'm going to bless you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. And now Zechariah says, in fulfillment of that promise, this this seed has come. I don't think that we pay sufficient attention to the connection that we have with these holy men of antiquity. We are in the same family, and we are beneficiaries of the promises that were made to Abraham and the promises that were made to David. And we should not venerate them to the point of worshiping saints, but I think that uh, sometimes we, we lose a sense of the context that we have, that we are in the stream of godly people who have been flowing in the river of God for thousands of years. And it's good for us to remember that we are the beneficiaries of covenants that were made with holy men long ago. But more particularly... We are the beneficiary of a covenant that God made with Jesus. As just as David, just as the Lord swore to Abraham and the Lord swore to David that he would bless his descendants, so also the book of Hebrews tells us that the Lord has sworn to Jesus, I've sworn and will not change my mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then there are all these benefits that flow to us from the fact that this covenant has been made with Jesus. 
There were times when the Lord threatened some kind of disaster against the people of Israel, but he says, but I'm not going to destroy you because I remember my covenant that I made with Abraham. There's time when the Lord was going to uh, bring punishment upon the house of David, but he says, but I'm not going to do it because I remember the covenant that I made with David. And we have a place of security because God is a covenant-keeping God. And he keeps the covenant that he made with the Lord Jesus Christ. That everyone who is united to Christ by faith is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven and they're made right with God. And though we mess up, yet the Lord remembers the covenant that he made with the Lord Jesus Christ. After after Saul, the predecessor to David on the throne of Israel, had died, then David asked, is there any left of the household of Saul that I might show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan. And they found out this, they found out this crippled boy, Mephibosheth, and uh, they brought him before King David. Mephibosheth was frightened. Mephibosheth thought, well, I'm, I'm one of the last remnants of the household of Saul who was a vicious, deadly enemy against David. Probably David is going to do to me what most Middle Eastern kings do to the descendants of their predecessor. He's going to wipe us out so there'll be no possibility of a coup from the former administration. And so when Mephibosheth comes before David, he's trembling and he's afraid. But David says, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, for I have determined to show you covenant kindness, covenant kindness for the sake of Jonathan, your father. You see, David and Jonathan had been great friends, and more than once, Jonathan David took an oath. I will always be kind to the descendants of your family. And Jonathan died with Saul on Mount Gilboa, but this boy Mephibosheth, he, he was crippled. He was crippled because of a fall. When the news came that Saul and Jonathan and the other sons of Saul had been killed on Mount Gilboa, then, then his nurse picked up little Mephibosheth. She thought, we've got to get out of here. The, the Philistines or maybe the forces of David will come and overtake the palace and kill us all. And so she took off running with little Mephibosheth and she fell. And she fell on him so badly that it, it crippled his limbs so that for the rest of his life he was crippled. And then David calls this crippled, this crippled boy to him and says, I'm going to show you covenant kindness for the sake of Jonathan, your father. Now we too are crippled. There's no way that we can get to God on our own, but God, and we're crippled because of a fall, but God sends out the Holy Spirit and says, gather that one into my, gather that one into my family. When Mephibosheth appeared before David, he said, uh, David said to him, I'm going to show kindness to you. And from now on, you are going to eat at my table. And Mephibosheth responded, who is your servant that you should sow mercy to such a dead dog as I am? But for the rest of his days, Mephibosheth was able to sit at the table of David. And I know back in those days, people never sat in chairs and drew up to tables the way that we do. But I just like to think that for the rest of his days, Mephibosheth's crippled legs were were hidden under the table because of the covenant kindness. And though we remain crippled by the effects of sin in our lives, yet the Lord shows us kindness for Jesus' sake. And he doesn't see our crippled feet when they're under his table. The Lord showed mercy to David and to Abraham, and he shows mercy to Jesus because he is a covenant-keeping God. And because he's a covenant-keeping God, then he raised up a horn 
of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So now let's turn our attention to this this description of Jesus, uh, that he is a horn of salvation. Now I looked this word up in in a concordance, and uh, most of the time when the word horn appears in the Bible, it refers to a literal horn. But many times, it's not unfrequent in the Old Testament that the word horn is given as a symbol of power. As far as I can tell, this is the only time in the New Testament where it is used in that poetic way, that Jesus has been raised up, that he is a horn of salvation for us. Now, this is a word picture that the Lord has given us, and so let's, uh, let's milk it. Let's see, uh, let's see what we can get out of it. And first of all, a horn is a demonstration of power. And so when Jesus is described as a horn, he is someone, for those who have eyes to see, someone who has great power. Now, uh, this is very, very easy for us to uh, recognize if I just picture for you a scenario that uh, somebody is after you and you have got to run and you run up to a fence. And on the other side of that barbed wire fence, right where you are, there is one fence that divides pasture number one from pasture number two. And you look, and much to your dismay, both of those pastures have cows in them that are obviously bulls. Great, big, muscular bulls. Mustaches and beards, you know that they're bulls. And one of them has horns, and the other one doesn't. And you've got to run through one of those pastures. You know which one you're going to choose. You're going to choose the pasture that doesn't have the horned bull in it. Now, it's fairly unusual to see cows with horns these days because uh, farmers know Cows with horns hurt you. And so when they're very young, <clears throat> then they uh, clip those horns and get them so that they won't grow. But, uh, but a, horn, uh, a horned bull is an extraordinarily dangerous animal. When he walks into the pasture, they're just kind of an ambience that comes along with him. This is a demonstration of great power. And we can see from this text that this demonstration of great power is a terror to God's enemies. Let's see what it says there in verse 70 or verse 71. He's raised up this horn of salvation that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then in verse 74, that we're being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And so this horn of salvation is something that is intimidating to the enemies of the Lord. You may recall that during the ministry of Jesus, there were times when Jesus had encounters with demons. And sometimes those demons would cry out and say, I know who you are. Have you come to torment us before our time? These demons know that there's a time coming when they're going to be tormented and no longer allowed to uh, do the things that they were doing and still are doing on earth. They know that that time is coming, but they know that Jesus has the power to do it. Uh, A great horned Savior has walked into their purview, and they they see him, and they are appropriately terrified because a horn is meant to strike terror in the hearts of enemies. But then it's also meant to provide comfort for those who are his friends. So the, the horn is terror to his enemies, but comfort to his friends. It is a Horn of salvation, verse 69 says. 
And verse 72 tells us that he has raised up a horn to show the mercy promised to our fathers. And so the the mercy is the force behind the sending of the horn. Why would the Lord send a horn to deliver his people? Because there are enemies that are going to threaten us. There is Satan and all the spiritual foes. There is our own sinfulness. There is even the wrath of God that is directed against us. And the the appropriate Savior for this is a lamb, yes, a meek lamb who can take away the sin of the world, but also a horn who will provide victory, who will conquer his and our enemies and, and conquer us to himself as well. And so Jesus, the fact that he is a horn, is a terror to his enemies, but it's a comfort to his friends. And then notice one, one other thing about this horn. It is also an inspiration to his followers. Look at verse 74. He's brought this horn that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the fact that we have a powerful Savior who demonstrates his power like a a muscular, strong horned animal causes us to say, hey, we don't have to be afraid of all these people. We don't have to be afraid of all these demons. We have a Savior who is a mighty horn. And so we're going to serve him without fear. We don't have to fear death because our lives are in his hands. We don't have to fear attacks from the evil one because the evil one has been subdued by our Savior. His head has been crushed we don't have to fear, we don't have to fear the, uh, the wrath of God because God is reconciled to us and we rejoice in God. We don't have to fear hell because Jesus Christ has borne the penalty of our sins for us. And so the fact that Jesus is a conquering horn gives inspiration to us who are his followers that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, the second picture that is given of Jesus in in the remainder of this song is that he is the sunrise. He is a sunrise that is preceded by the morning star. Now, John the Baptist is not called the morning star, but he is the predecessor that goes before Jesus. Let's see what John, let's see what Zechariah says about his son, John, now in verse 76. And you, child, will will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It's all one long sentence. And it starts off talking about his son, but he immediately shifts the focus over to Jesus, who is the sunrise. But what he says about his son is significant. I've already told you that John the Baptist is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I love the things that are said about John the Baptist. So, for example, what it says in verse 66, the hand of the Lord, the hand of the Lord was with him. And then what it says in verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit. 
And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You fathers of sons need to do some contemplation. What was it that helped this child to grow and become strong in spirit? Am I raising a boy that is strong in spirit? Or am I raising a boy who's like a wet noodle? Am I raising a boy that's got a backbone? A boy who who has confidence? A boy who has confidence in himself as he follows after the Lord? That is not at all ashamed of being a man. Am I raising a boy like that? May God help us to raise our sons and influence our sons to become strong in spirit. But we'll have more time to, uh, to think about John the Baptist in the days to come, God willing. Now, let's see what Zechariah says about him. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him. And this is the prophecy that we read concerning Zechariah, concerning John the Baptist. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, and you can also read a similar promise in Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every mountain will be brought down, every valley will be lifted up. Actually mentions the valleys first. The valley will be exalted, every mountain will be brought low. Now this is the ministry that John the Baptist had, and it was a ministry of preparing people for the Lord. And I think that um, the idea of Bringing the valleys up is that those who are downtrodden and oppressed by sin will be raised up so that they can easily meet the master. Those who are exalted with the mountains of pride and haughtiness are going to be made low so that Jesus can walk over them. Those crooked ways of wrong thinking, John the Baptist is going to set many of them straight so that the way is prepared for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what John did. And uh, we do well to recognize and appreciate John the Baptist as our older brother who was faithful in the Lord. His ministry was to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Notice that the essence of salvation is what we all know it to be, forgiveness of sins. Although for a while we think that it could be deliverance from hell. Now that is not an unspiritual consideration. Most of us were driven to seek salvation from the Lord Jesus Christ because we were afraid of hell. And it was only later that we learned that the reason we deserved to go to hell was because of our sins. And then we saw the bigger picture that what we really need is forgiveness of our sins. And John the Baptist, in the message that he had, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we don't have many of John's sermons, but what we do have about John the Baptist is a clear fulfillment of the prophecy that he would prepare the way for the Lord to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. And then notice the, the moving force behind this sending of the horn, this sending of the sunrise. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Believing that God is a God of tender mercy is something that you must believe or you will never become a Christian. You will never go to God as long as you believe him to be only a God of displeasure and wrath. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 6 says, He that believeth must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so it's not just the proclamation of God's wrath and God's anger and God's judgment 
that draws people to seek the Lord. It's also a proclamation that he is a God of mercy. On Wednesday night, I recommended to our pastoral interns a a book that uh, you would all do well to read called The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. It was edited by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Brainerd married one of Edwards' daughters. Uh, uh, Brainerd was sick with tuberculosis when he married uh, Edwards' daughter. She nursed him. He died. She caught tuberculosis from him. She also died. It's a very sad story. The life of David Brainerd was spent in trying to bring the gospel to the Native Americans who at that time lived in New England. This was in the the mid-1700s. David Brainerd, just a young man, sick all the time, and yet he goes out and he lives in incredibly harsh conditions to bring the gospel to the American Indians. And God, God, God blessed his efforts, and many hundreds of the Indians came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something in the diary of David Brainerd that I'm reminded of as I emphasize this point. You must believe that God is a God of tender mercy. He said that as long as he was preaching to the Indians only the awfulness of their sin, only preaching to them the judgment of God, the dangers and torments of hell, that there was no significant movement of God's Spirit among them. But when he began to preach about the love of God demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, then the Spirit of God swept through those Indian camps And many hundreds of them were moved by the tender mercy of God to come and put their faith in him. And so along with the fear that you and I have, and naturally and rightfully so, the fear of facing God's judgment, remember that he is Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion, and sin. It's true that he will by no means clear the guilty, but how could he have possibly made more provision for the forgiveness of the guilty than he has made when he made his son who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so it's because of the tender mercy of our God that the message of forgiveness of sins was preached by John and is preached by me and preached by other, every, every other gospel witness because of the tender mercy of our God. And because of the tender mercy of our God, the sun has risen. At this time, the sun was just below the horizon, but it was about to rise. And Zechariah says, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Another translation says, the sun, the sun shall shine on, on us from heaven. Jesus, when he came, he came from on high. And notice the two things that uh, the sunrise does for us. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness. And darkness is a, uh, a universal picture of ignorance and fright. And we are ignorant of God and his ways. But then the Lord Jesus comes like the sunrise and says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. We're in the darkness of ignorance and And fear because of our sin. But the Lord Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus shines on those who sit in darkness. Are you in darkness? 
Do you feel like it's all gloom and that there's no hope? There is a sun that has arisen in the sky. Open your eyes and turn your face to the sun and let the sun of righteousness shine on you and teach you about God because no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And so ask that the Father would reveal to you Himself in the rising sun of the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's a second thing that the sunrise does there in verse 79. He's to give light to those who sit in darkness. We've considered that. And here's the second thing, and in the shadow of death. Now, many of you will immediately think of Psalm 23 when the psalmist says, David says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The sun is dispelling the shadows. The only reason that there is a shadow is because the sun is shining. If the sun were not out, there would be no shadow. But the sun has arisen, and he is shining on those who live in the shadow of death. We all live to some degree in the shadow of death. Before we are born again by the Lord Jesus Christ and granted eternal life, then we live in the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ that he came to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And the fear of death will cause you to concoct uh, imaginative ways that you think you're going to please God, and, uh, but it doesn't alleviate the fear. Your sin continues to gnaw. Your, your sin continues to plague your conscience, and you know that you are guilty before God. But when the sun of righteousness arises and shines on those living in the shadow of death, then we see... This is the way that I can be delivered from the king of terrors. This is the way that I no longer need to fear death. I need to become a follower of Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me will never die. And we embrace the rising sun as the the sun who can dispel the shadows of death. And though we may still die physically, as we all will if the Lord Jesus doesn't come back and transform us before that, Though we may and will die physically, yet the sting of death has been removed because the sun has arisen and shone on those living in the shadow of death. And then there's a third thing that happens once this sun arises. At the end of verse 79, it says that he will guide our feet into the way of peace. He guides our feet into the way of peace with God so that we can be reconciled. Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he leads us to become at peace with his people. The middle wall of partition has been broken down. Ephesians chapter 2 says, At one time you were strangers and you were aliens from the people of God, but now you have been brought near through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are at peace with God's people and we become part of God's people. But then there's one more thing. It is only the blood of Christ that can give your conscience a good reason to quit pestering you. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When a conscience is working properly, it will be satisfied with nothing less than the blood of Jesus Christ. But if your conscience has an ounce of sense, when you point your conscience to the Lord Jesus Christ and you say, conscience I know that I fail in many ways, but the Lord Jesus Christ is my righteousness and I'm trusting in him. Conscience, I know that 
you're just doing your job when you convict me of sin. And I thank you for the good job that you have done. But when you say that I'm going to be separated from God and condemned because of my sin, let me tell you, conscious, just look there at the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that was enough for God because the Bible says he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God is satisfied. I'm satisfied. Now, conscience, will you be satisfied? And if your conscience has a lick of sense, then your conscience, like a submissive dog, will say, yes, that's enough. I submit to this revelation of truth that you have shown me that the Lord Jesus Christ, and now you may walk in the way of peace. So how is it with you, my friend? Are you still in the darkness? Are you still afraid of dying? Are you away from the people of God? You can become at one with the people of God. The meal that we're getting ready to take symbolizes the union that we have with Christ himself, the union that we have with the people of God. One of the names that we give this is not just the Lord's Supper, where we, like Mephibosheth, put our crippled feet under the table of the Lord, but we also call it communion. We are in communion with God, but we're also in communion with one another. This is a meal for people who are following the Lord. This is a meal for people who are members of this church or members of another good church, members uh, for people who have followed the Lord in scriptural baptism. And when we take this meal, then it's communion with God and it's communion with the people of God. The other name by which this is called is the Eucharist, which is a, a, a Greek word that means the giving of thanks. And so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, let there be a sense of thanksgiving that God has sent us a horn of salvation, that he has sent us the sunrise to dispel the darkness that we were in and to relieve us from the fear of the shadow of death, to deliver us from the animosity that existed between us and God. Let's reflect with appreciation upon the body that was broken and the blood that was shed so that we might be reconciled to God and serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Amen.